Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 24th, 2023. Uh, earlier today, uh, we broadcast a conversation I had with my old friend, the Turkish journalist now living in Germany, Ece Temel Kuren, on social media's failure to change the world. Ece was very much involved in the uh, Gazi uh, Park protests uh, in 2013, very active on social media, has over 2 million followers on Twitter. And we talked about her disappointment, I guess, with social media in terms of affecting social change. Another Turkish journalist who's been on the show recently uh, is Umut Ozkirilni. He's the author of a, another controversial book, Cancelled, The Left Way Back from Woke, which talks about what he views at least as the intolerance of the left uh, in many ways bound up with social media. Um, and I thought I'd have him back on the show to talk about his sense of the history of social media and whether or not, like Eche, he's been disappointed. He's joining us from uh, Istanbul today, where he's on vacation. Uh, Umat, you normally live in Barcelona, where you teach at a couple of universities. Uh, yeah. Where were you um, in, uh, in May or in, in the hot summer of uh, 2013, exactly 10 years ago, between May and oh, I was there, actually. I was there, too. I mean, I was living in Sweden back then. Uh, but then, of course, you know, when, when the Gezi protest started, uh, well, that was a very exciting point for all of us. I mean, for... for I wasn't in exile, by the way. Let me just put it... Uh, I mean, I had a certain kind of reputation, but I wasn't kind of big enough or important enough to be cancelled at that point. But during the Gezi protests, I became one. Uh, I just jumped on a plane and, and came to Istanbul, spent a week or, or so there, I think right before the government intervened. Because the day I left, uh, it was a Saturday, I recall very well. I don't know the exact date, but that was when the, the, the police, the riot police intervened uh, to clear um, the park from, from the, you know, the occupiers, basically. Uh, and we could, uh, we were in a restaurant quite far away from, from the park, but we could, even from, from in the restaurant that we were kind of having dinner, we could smell the, the canisters, you know, the tear gas and everything. We could hear the, the shotguns and everything. Umet, uh, um, yeah. I've talked extensively to Eche and Soli as well. Soli Ozel has been on the show, another friend of yours about the role of social media in all this. Yeah. How do you see the place of social media, both in at Gezi, but also more broadly in the Arab Spring, the promise and, and the way in which many Western technologists, people like Mark Zuckerberg, saw social media as a, a vehicle for social and political change? Well, definitely not. I mean, it started that way, yes. And, and the two examples that, well, basically the only good example you could give uh, is, well, I'm talking about from a global political perspective, 
was the Arab Spring. Uh, in that case, it was Facebook. Uh, and then, you know, in during the, the various revolutions, riots, because, you know, at the same time at Gezi, there were uh, protests in Brazil, for instance. I remember that in, in Palestine, they were opening up the flags of the Turkish flags and everything. So in, at this particular moment, between 2010, 13, 14, it still had an emancipatory or liber liberationist perspective as well. It was helping at least people to communicate. Uh, when you and, were walking around, Gezi, when you were there, when you came back from Sweden, were people all on their smartphones tweeting, oh, yeah. updating yeah. on it, Facebook? Yeah, because that was the way that people communicating. So, so people were kind of, you know, exchanging ideas, things that they need or sharing the spots that police was kind of, you know, setting up barricades. Uh, it was very helpful in terms of communicating with the rest of the world. I mean, I myself took uh, several Swedish journals with me from the mainstream newspapers, and I, I arranged interviews with them, and I helped them, you know. So it was it was a window opening up to the rest of the world. And, and the government, just like any other government in other parts of the world, quickly realized the, the potential of social media, and they started the blackouts. Uh, so they were jamming uh, in and around Gezi protests and etc. What? But I guess you know. I don't know. After that, um, uh, I think you know. There's still one element of it that that was still useful for political change because you know there is a potential of things going viral on social media, and that will be also the curse that we probably are going to talk about, there's still something that, you know, that, that you know, it, it, you can um, incite, you know, you can trigger change somehow uh, for a good or a bad cause. I mean, I used this potential fully in 2016 uh, when uh, we needed uh, about $1.5 million to take my little boy who was suffering from cancer to a clinical uh, trial in uh, in New York, Sloan Kettering Hospital, and and thanks to my high profile kind of my networks and everything, we were able to collect two hundred fifty thousand, basically a quarter of a million of dollars in ten days. Now this this wouldn't have happened without Twitter. W was this mostly in twenty sixteen? Was this, this mostly was uh, uh, raised, This money was raised through. Twitter or Facebook? Uh, Twitter, mostly Twitter. We shared it on other platforms as well, but it was Twitter and it wasn't, you know, big donations because we kept track of, obviously, of everything. Uh, uh, about 3.500,000 people contributed to it. I received, you know, seriously, I mean, like very, very emotional messages from like a student, say, saying, you know, Mutojam, I don't have money to, to, to eat uh, that much, but I mean, you know, I'm just going to skip lunch today and send $10 to Luca, for instance, that kind of stuff. So it was small amounts of money coming from a lot of people, and 80% of the money came from Turkey. Uh, and, but but from and the rest, the 20%, people who read my books, uh, mostly the academic community. Did you but... see a connection between the promise of social media in terms of Gezi in 2013 when you brought the Swedish journalists who were involved? Yeah. And the promise of social media in terms of raising money for your sick son? Yes, exactly. And that's, that's, that's you know, that's the power of social media. 
which also is it's it's the curse of it, you know, because if it's used in a good, I mean, it's, it's like every single human invention, I guess. I don't know, you know, it's it could be used in a good way, it could be used in a bad way. Now the problem is you have uh, well there, there are two things. One, we have no control over it. But two, as we discover uh, more and more clearly these days, uh, if there's a monopoly, as you know, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, etc., etc. I mean, this this recent article by Ronan Farrow uh, in in New Yorker about Twitter, uh, about Twitter, Elon Musk was was terrible. Uh, it, because of the monopoly, then you don't know what how the algorithms work. So so I mean, they can not only interfere with the first part is about, you know, the, like the, the uncontrollable aspects of it is is what leads to cancel culture, this, this and right. that. I, I want to get to cancel culture. We'll do that after the break and, and your yeah. own experience and in, in, in the way in yeah. social media essentially turned on you. But I want to talk a little bit more about the promise, the political promise of social media. Were there particular dates where you suddenly realized that social media in political terms wasn't going to deliver on on all this promise uh in, in terms of the arab spring certain dates in egypt in tunisia of course in turkey uh again in my own experience andrew actually because in 2013 when i was tweeting about gezi my profile raised uh and so so this is before my son's uh crowdfunding uh Immediately, the, the government basically realized that there is a potential there that was used during the Arab Spring. So they established their uh, army of trolls. Um, so in 2013, immediately, because I was a supporter of Gezi, then I became, quote-unquote, uh, important and more, because, you know, I was in Sweden and I could tweet freely about the government intervention. I've done, I've edited a collection on the Gezi protests as well in 2000. Uh, 13. Um, so that made me a target of the government, pro-government, basically social media trolls. And at that point, I was referred to be as a pro-PKK, you know, the Kurdish separatist group, and pro-Kurdish terrorists, basically. Uh, and, and then I started to receive death threats. Uh, because, I mean, I didn't take that Remember seriously. the first death threat you, you, you had? I mean, after a while, I guess they... Just, just right... It was it was during the Gaza protests, yes. Right after, I mean, I went back to Sweden. Uh, the the intervention had happened. People were killed, uh, and I was like tweeting frantically uh, about it. And at that point, you know, I was I became a target. And and I remember, you know, I, I was living in Lund, a small university town in the south of Sweden. Uh, I didn't take them seriously because I didn't think that anybody would really try to kill me or anything. But then there was, I received one particular threat from a guy who was freelancing for Turkish national TV in Stockholm. I mean, so this was an open account, not an anonymous one. And he told, he wrote a tweet saying that he is in a train from Malmö to Lund, which is a 10 minute distance. I doubt it was real, but it was serious enough to be taken seriously by the university and the local police. So I carried an alarm button for about three months. And, and the what, was he, what did he threaten? That he was going to kill you? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's coming for me. Yes. He said he's coming for me. Uh, and because I had a little son, 
at that time, like not even a year old. Uh, I and, and my family, I mean, okay, we weren't together with his mother, but, you know, it's still my family. Uh, and also the university was very sensitive about the students, of course, uh, security, because they were having this a lot, they told me, with um, Israel-Palestine issue and Russia and Ukraine. So, so all this was done publicly. He tweeted publicly. That oh, yeah, was... yeah. Everything is public. I, 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 Did I you complain to Twitter? Oh, yeah, of course. Nothing and happened. what was the response? Nothing happened. Did they Nothing even happened. communicate with you? Uh, yeah, they said, you know, the drill. I mean, you know, when J.K. Rowling tweets, even J.K. Rowling, you know, she received a bomb manual and, and, and Twitter said this is not against our community guidelines. That was the, 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 the thing. I mean, I was being, then there was a guy uh, called, uh, I think, Wake Up Attack or something like that. We knew who he was. He was in, uh, a pro-government guy living and teaching in an American university. We provided all the details, but so that's the thing that I would, I mean, I, I, I hate the way uh, the, the things that Elon Musk is doing to Twitter, whatever, X, whatever it is. But the point is Twitter was not that better before Elon Musk take over either. It's just that now it's tilted towards the right. Uh, it's, it's kind of a right wing platform. Before that, there was no safeguarding either. None of these things. Uh, when when I had when my, my accounts were hacked at some point, uh, we thinking this was Facebook and Twitter. We thinking it was uh, this was after the, the the money fundraising. So and I know that it was a Russian hacker. So this which, was in 2016. Why, why would a Russian hacker want to hack your? Uh, I have no clue. Uh, I mean, the guy was uh, well. The IP of the guy was in Bangladesh. But he said he was Russian himself uh, because we've submitted all the correspondence, which was obviously done by, on his part through Google Translate to the police. And the police said, oh, that's a scammer. Don't even. And I didn't. I was naive enough in 2016, 17. Still, uh, I wasn't using two factor authentication. That was the reason. The police's guess, the Swedish police's guess, was that uh, it was because of this very famous fundraising that we've done, because it, it went into. And this was the fundraising for your son. For, yes, exactly. So, so basically, the police why, said, "Why would why would people want to hurt you because of that?" Oh, not hurt. He was asking for money. Oh, oh, simple as that. You know, it just said, uh, "If you don't, uh, you know, he was contacting my friends." Uh, he basically took control of my Facebook and Twitter account. Twitter back then was quick. When when they are trying to, you know, when they ho get hold of your account, this is pre-Elon Musk Twitter, you could get it back in an hour. Uh, Facebook, I spent three hours trying to reach something, someone, not even a machine. And that, that stayed uh, like that for about, I don't know, six hours, seven hours. I couldn't get hold of my, uh, and I know that this was related to my son. That was police's theory, but that was also something that I suspected it because, you know, I didn't have an Instagram account back then. How many uh, followers did you have on Twitter or do you have on Twitter? Uh, at that point, uh, above 30,000. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, I have about 5,000, which is the limit. I didn't have an Instagram account, but the the facebook group of uh cancer patients that we were a member of you know it's, it's a closed group 
um, a, a parent of a of a you know kid with cancer wrote to 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 the mother of my son Erika and said that there is an account on Instagram with our son's pictures asking for money for his uh, ailment. This was one year after uh, we've done the collection, and neither Erika nor me had an Instagram account back then. So immediately we went in and we saw that, yes, there was a fake account with my son's picture asking for money. Now, the, the parent recognized our son, Luca, and he warned, uh, she warned us and we took it down. So this wasn't the first. And then the hacking happened. So it was not, I don't think it was very coincidental. I mean, basically the guy said, if you want your account back, give me $1,000. Right. So the, the clouds are darkening. We're going to take a break now and then talk to Umut about um, his nightmare on social media beginning, I think, in about 2019 and 20. He's the author of Cancelled. Uh, and we're going to take a short break now uh, to uh, for, a, for a video about our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent journal. Um, and uh, one that uh, defends free speech, and the very kind of liberalism that seems to be under assault from social media. So we're going to be right back in a couple of seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Umut uh, Ozkirimli, the author of Cancelled, and a man who was himself cancelled. So uh, we've talked about your son, uh, Umut. Uh, when did your particular nightmare, when were you cancelled what what are the key dates here yeah the key date would be i guess i mean you know um i i there were some things happening between 2018 20 uh which led me to lawyer up basically as as they would say in 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 america uh and send season desist letters to to someone who was accusing me of of various things um and then uh after we sent the second season desist letter to this person, uh, this person went online on the 1st of June 2020 and shared a series of nine tweets, not using my name, but implying that I was a, a, a harasser, basically. So again, um, let's, uh, let's deal with the social media aspect of this. Someone was yeah. accusing you of something. We don't necessarily need to get into those details. No, no. How, how central was social media in this? And they were complaining... To your university, you were teaching uh, in Lund in Sweden. You're a distinguished political scientist. No, um, I, but back, back then I had already left Sweden. That's the social media aspect. Well, I'll, I'll give you very quickly. You know, it's like this was a very well planned campaign because, I mean, this person tweeted in Turkish and, and played to a Turkish audience. Um, and the tweets uh, in a couple of hours, basically, I, I know the numbers because, you know, there was a court process and I was 
you know, this person was found. And this guilty. was the summer of June 2020, is that right? Yes, summer of Ju uh, June 2020. Right, um, so some of these images are on. So it's early June 2020. Exactly. And I mean, you know, within an hour, it was obvious that, you know, this person was trying to avoid a defamation suit. So, so other people, anonymous accounts named me immediately. Uh, the tweets, uh, I remember uh, within a couple of days, they were retweeted 1,100 times. And then there were like 3,000 likes, something like that. Uh, now, in a country uh, where there are 13 million Twitter users, this uh, amounts to, well, millions of people, basically. Well, basically well, I, I became a trending topic for a couple of hours. That's how I found out about it. I, I wasn't aware. I was moving houses in Barcelona. I had already left Sweden after uh, uh, my son's death in 2018. So I, I became a trending topic in Turkey for a couple of hours, basically. Uh, it, the whole thing was presented as Turkish Academia's Me Too moment and all of that, and and yeah, it, so it, you it, were accused by a woman of yeah some sort of uh, sex sexual transgression. Exactly, that was that was that wasn't actually even the accusation. That's the that's the tricky part. I mean, that's the first uh, kind of w w worse aspect of 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 this social media. I mean, uh, things. A falsehoods, basically. Uh, well, there is the viral aspect. I mean, I, I when I was working on my book, I discovered that falsehoods spread seven times faster than truths, uh, and that's an MIT research. And and I was never accused of of sexual harassment or harassment actually. And and you know this wasn't even a deal that was already completely over. There was nothing, but all of a sudden, within a couple of hours, uh, these allegations. That I, I mean, that that stemmed from a person that I had some sort of a relationship with, outside academia, became word first a matter of academia. Two, from harassment, it kind of progressed into sexual harassment. So I became a sexual harasser, serial sexual harasser, uh, and at some point, even a potential murder. This was on social media. Uh, and then uh, the same night, the Turkish government intervened, jumped on the opportunity, and the chief prosecutor of the Turkish Republic started an investigation about me, uh, even though they don't have any jurisdiction, there's no com concrete accusation, there's nothing, uh, within 24 hours. Uh, so so this, going back to Gezi, you were, as you know, you were there on the ground, you were... Yeah then uh you were then targeted by people you think were involved with the turkish government is this all political or ultimately when the smoke clears was it a, a plot to undermine critics of the uh, of the turkish government like yourself i mean not the origin of the accusation because i know the person you know i know the motives and everything but I mean, uh, the way in which the government was involved and, and, and on all of a sudden, I mean, that's why I wrote the book, uh, the cancelled, I mean, a critique of the progressive circles, because the people who jumped on the bandwagon were cooperating with the state. And the state this time was accusing me in 2020, so seven years later, of being an affiliate of the Pennsylvania-based kind of Gulen Right, movement. but the government in Turkey... Um... 
is is conservative, is right wing. The subtitle of your yeah. book is The Left Way Back from Woke. How is this bound up with the issue of the left and woke? Because that's these were the people, I mean, my own kind of, I would have called my own tribe, you want to use that word, political tribe, were the people who were uh, cancelling me. I mean, these were the people who were spreading the lies. Now, the government joined in precisely because of my personality and they didn't, you know, all, as I said, from being a Kurdish sympathizer, sympathizer i became a, a kind of a muslim sympathizer this clerical group or something like that but the point is they weren't doing the cancellation they jumped on the bandwagon of something that was already started by so-called progressives feminists etc etc and when the plan- uh, what's the agenda of these progressives are they just men haters oh, are they picking on you for political reasons are you a I complete innocent I- I mean, you know, I mean, this particular person had her own motives and that was, you know, there was money involved and everything. Uh, The other people joined in for several different reasons. I guess one particular reason is, okay. I mean, there are personal issues. Like I pissed off a lot of people for different reasons because I engage in polemics. I criticize. I actually don't belong to any tribe, which I realize now is something that people don't like. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm a self-defined progressive, but I was not a, a member of these groups, uh, any particular group in that sense. So different people jumped on the bandwagon for different reasons. Uh, but in the end, it was the feminists and, and those people who were doing that. Another really important aspect, and, and I really want to stress this here before you know, we move on, is that after I, I published the documents which showed because, you know, it wasn't he said, she said situation. I had hundreds of documents proving my, and that's why I won in court, uh, proving my innocence. When I published those, there were people, women and feminists, who realized that this was a hoax. Uh, and, and immediately, and that's where everything becomes really complicated, within a week or two, the, I was being defended by a number of feminists that I don't, I haven't even ever met in my life. So these people were accusing. Uh, so ultimately, the, doesn't that suggest that all this was a bit of a storm in the teacup? That people are oh, yeah, exactly. accused for one reason or another of exactly stuff that they didn't do, and then bad people come out of the woodwork. Some are anonymous. Some are working for foreign governments. Some are interested in making money for themselves. But ultimately, this thing righted itself. Yes, but but storm in a teacup with with serious real life consequences. So that's why your analogy, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's in, in the end, it's correct. But what happens, I mean, isn't this what, what we're talking about social media? I mean, yes, it, in the end, it's a storm in a teacup. What we did after this teacup, you know, I, I went through several uh, meetings with my employers because all of them were uh, warned and told that and I was... this was in Barcelona. You were already... This was in Barcelona. You already left Lund. I had already left Lund, but also other institutions that I was affiliated with in the past, uh, they were all told. Colleagues were contacted and and told not to cooperate with me. Uh, My publishers were contacted, previous publishers, not the publisher of Cancelled, and and told not to cooperate with me. I lost two projects. One was a memoir about my son's journey. The the Turkish publisher of that memoir cancelled the contract. And, and, and uh, by this point, your son had died. 
uh, he had died and I was writing his memoir. I was trying to recover from, you know, PTSD. And that was, you know, also a therapeutic way of doing it. And because my son and I were communicating in Turkish, I was writing this in Turkish and the publisher canceled out. And then there was also uh, an international documentary that we were shooting with a Swedish and Danish directors and producers that also fell, I mean, went down the drain. So basically, I lost two projects about my son who had nothing to do with all of these things. Now, the psychological impacts of it, I mean, I never recovered from PTSD for another year. My my mother's son was dragged into courts. She had to make public statements because people were saying in the teacup in this during the storm that we actually used the donations uh, on lawyers and things like that, that I was harassing women while my, my son was dying. Like, Andrew, this is not, as I mean, this, a storm in a teacup, f- fine. But, you know, that's what, what really pisses me off. Well, it wrecks people's lives. And that's it really the story here. Life. It's wrecked your life in many ways. Um, Umid, let's end. You've, you've referred to Elon Musk a couple of times. The Ronan Farrow piece just published in The New Yorker about his power, his power over government. What needs to happen? We, we began this conversation talking about the promise of Gezi uh, and the role of social media. And then much of the rest has been about how social media has destroyed people's lives, undermined democracy. What, in your view, needs to happen with social media to um, re- rekindle its promise? Or, 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 or should we just give up on it and go back to real life? I mean, you know, I, I, I can think of a couple of re, uh, ways in which it could be improved, but I don't think they will happen in real life. I mean, first of all, the monopolies have to be broken. I mean, there has to be many players in it. And secondly, we need full transparency. Uh, we don't know the algorithms. We don't know how they interfere with politics, with elections and all of that. They're not, you know, disclosing the documents uh, or their, their workings. Uh, then we know that from through this article, but it wasn't very that much of a secret. Elon Musk has business uh, deals with various authoritarian governments, etc. I mean, and, and it's not only about Elon Musk. I mean, the American state, according to that article, was negotiating with Musk in order to for him to keep Starlink available during the war in Ukraine. Uh, so basically, I don't see how this could be improved because, you know, um, And it's a very powerful tool. It is like a nuclear weapon, actually, because once it it explodes, uh, the after effects uh, remain, basically. It's not like, I mean, I'm I'm sure you've seen it. It's it's a big deal over here, too. I've seen the Oppenheimer movie. It's not the explosion that counts. It's the, the death and the wreckage that comes afterwards. So how much of Brexit is caused by Russian interference due with with this. You know, we know now uh, through Ronan Farrow's article uh, that for a couple of days uh, or weeks, the Ukrainian troops couldn't advance because Elon Musk was cutting their communication. This is terrible. This is a huge power. Uh, If we cannot control it, and I don't think we can, then yeah, I would rather go back to the good old days where we were using our phones only to, I don't know, to watch something and to call each other. Simple as that.